and thank you for joining us for another weekly journey around the world of dairy with the Dairy Dialogue podcast. And this is number 62, and it's Friday the 13th. Less said about that, the better. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I've never seen so many people outside of my office window as I did yesterday. And no, it has nothing to do with me, or at least I hope it doesn't. I live opposite a building that was being used for voting in the UK general election. It's usually a very quiet spot, but for a change, it actually wasn't raining. Although, leaving politics aside, it has been a very wet and windy week here, apart from yesterday, and the shortest day is approaching next week. In terms of sunlight, that is, most days are 24 hours, as far as I'm aware. Before we head off into the news of the week, I'll tell you who our guests are. We talked to Mark Brayman, CEO of Pantherix, about the company's recent deal with Vita Dairy in Vietnam. Sean Yam, Linterform's corporate services chief, about the potential for Russia to once more accept EU dairy products. And Carolyn Hackenberg, category manager for dairy at Tate & Lyle, about the new products presented at Food Ingredients Europe in Paris recently. And we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. As far as the holiday season is concerned, the Dairy Reporter schedule and the podcast will be a bit up in the air. We will definitely have a podcast next week and daily news. And we'll also be sending out news December the 23rd and 24th, assuming there is any. Then we have two special newsletters on the 27th and the 30th, reviewing the most read news articles of the year and the most shared articles of the year on social media. I was a little bit surprised by some of them and I'm not going to give it away here. That's mainly because I can't remember the order of the top 10. So there will be no podcast on the 27th, which may be a good thing. And I'm yet to make my mind up about Friday the 3rd of January. We'll certainly be working away, but I'm not sure we'll have enough time to get some interviews done. But we shall see. And so let's have a quick recap of the week's news. Quite often December is one of those months where there's a bit of a panic because the news dries up. Well, not in 2019, it hasn't. In New Zealand, Winston Nutritional has been given Chinese government approval for infant formula production. If you're a maker of ice cream in the UK, entries for the UK National Ice Cream Competition are now open. Stora Enso is building a 9 million euro pilot plant for bio-based plastic packaging, which isn't easy to say, and that plant will be in Belgium. Valio is taking part in a customizable vending machine project. Hopefully it's one where the coin doesn't get swallowed and you don't get what you pay for. And in Canada, Gailey Foods has acquired Thornlow Cheese, a company in northern Ontario. In the US, Frenary, which we've featured several times on the podcast, has bought Nestle's US ice cream division for $4 billion. And the A2 Milk Company is looking for a new CEO after the sudden departure of its current CEO and managing director, Jane Herdlicker. New Zealand's MPI has told producers of unregistered raw drinking milk to stop selling it, and there was a flurry of activity this week related to dairy in U.S. politics, with the USDA extending the dairy margin coverage deadline to December the 20th, and progress has been made on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement and on a labor bill. All these and more on DairyReporter.com. And so we should get on with the interviews. First this week, we spoke with Mark Brayman, CEO of US company Pantherix, about its newly signed Vietnamese partnership. So maybe just a little bit of uh, detail about the 
partnership, the agreement with Vita Dairy. You know, we announced, you know, a multi-million dollar agreement, you know, between our subsidiary APS Bio Group and Vita Dairy. You know, Vita Dairy is the leading uh, Vietnamese nutrition dairy-based company and really a wonderful partner for us uh, on, on a number of fronts. The agreement captured, you know, a, a few different things. You know, one which is, uh, I think, very important is, uh, you know, a very specific uh, grade of, of colostrum, which is, you know, referenced in all the branding work and so forth uh, as Colos IgG24H is, is really the, the branded classification for our, our proprietary colostrum that we work with them on. And essentially what that is, Jim, is this is colostrum with high IgG antibodies. And in all of the colostrum that's uh, being used in their growing up milk products in Vietnam are uh, procured during the first 24 hours uh, after the calf has been um, uh, born. It's really relegated to that very specific piece of time. You know, antibodies and other important immune growth factors you know, are at their highest levels. So we're very uh, selective, right, in what we procure on that side to ensure that you know, we're able to hit the most important specifications for this application in growing up milks. You know, from, from a product standpoint, that's really, you know, the focus there. They have really established a great go-to-market uh, strategy with this. One of the things that I think is really noteworthy is that the uh, Vietnamese Ministry of Health uh, selected Vita Dairy as the company that they would support going forward uh, to address this initiative that they have in, in Vietnam, really focusing on helping children achieve stronger immunity. There were a number of different products and different companies that were, were evaluated, you know, to, to be selected. And, uh, you know, in, importantly, of course, uh, Vita Dairy was the one that uh, won the day. And so what does that mean? The Vietnamese uh, Ministry of Health has been sponsoring and running uh, conferences throughout the country where Vita Dairy presents the product, its benefits uh, to the physician community throughout the country. Uh, that includes key opinion leaders, you know, on, on the physician side as well. So think about it this way. They go to different areas of Vietnam. All of the doctors in those particular areas are invited to these conferences, these sessions, right? And at, at those sessions, uh, they're detailed, you know, on the product, its benefits, and so forth. And so you get, uh, you have the ability to, you know, educate the healthcare professional audience, uh, you know, throughout the country. And so all those conferences are actually sponsored by the Ministry of Health. And then Vita Dairy is the primary presenter, right, of the products and what the objectives are. It's really been a great partnership between Vita Dairy uh, and the Ministry of Health. And it's really been extremely successful. You know, that whole education process has really helped, you know, drive this opportunity in the market. And uh, Vita Dairy has far exceeded what their expectations are for, you know, for the first year of, of, of sales of these products. It's been a really great model with the, the, that they've put in place, and we're very excited to, to be working with them. Are they just in Vietnam, or do they extend beyond Vietnam? 
this, uh, you know, Vita Dairy is really focused on uh, Vietnam. They've dabbled a little bit in, in uh, Southeast Asia, but, uh, you know, essentially 100% of their efforts are focused on Vietnam and, and doing well there. It's, it's, a, it's a relatively big market. You know, there's 90 million people living in Vietnam, and, uh, you know, they're, they're really, they're very focused, you know, on that market. Uh, and frankly, you know, in this, uh, this age group of, you know, infants and children, uh, is the primary focus of the company. You mentioned Vietnam as being 90 million people. I know some people think of China as being the holy grail, but there are still some very large markets outside of China. Yeah, there, there certainly are. You know, you think about 90, pe- 90 million people in, a, in really a very small geographic area the size of Vietnam, right? Still a lot of people in a very you know, limited uh, you know, country in terms of size. What's really uh, exciting about what we're doing with Vita Dairy is our ability now, you know, to take this uh, much broader than just Vietnam. And what I mean by that is, is really, you know, partnering with other companies in these other markets around the world uh, for them to take forward growing up milks uh, that contain colostrum. So we think this is really the tip of the iceberg, you know, for this application of colostrum. And there's no question about the immune and uh, GI benefits, right, that uh, come from colostrum, and uh, the science is very strong. You know, Vita Dairy also has additional clinical studies going on with colostrum, as do we. But, you know, there's, uh, there's a wonderful opportunity here to take this much broader than Vietnam. And the success that we're seeing there and the way that we can take that success, you know, outside of Vietnam, we think is a, is a really wonderful opportunity for the company. And we've already started that process. You already had done something in Cambodia as well, is that right? Yeah, the Cambodia launch was more focused on infectious diarrhea there and really the uh, Dire Rescue brand, that, you know, that we, uh, we manufacture. The, the application is different there. It's, it's really addressing acute infectious diarrhea in Cambodia uh, where uh, this product is literally, you know, growing up milk product that really addresses specifically immune. That's the, that's the primary uh, positioning of the product in Vietnam. Vita Dairy is looking also to introduce products that have uh, a GI benefit uh, that also come from colostrum. And uh, those launches will start in early uh, 2020. We see a lot of growth in the Vietnamese market uh, with the addition of uh, you know, new products as well. Uh, that contain colostrum, and we expect that, like I mentioned, we expect that's going to also be the case, uh, you know, in m- many of these international markets. Will that be on your own, or will that be in partnership with Vita Dairy? Those will be uh, Pantherics, you know, specifically expanding. So Vita Dairy's uh, focus really is, is is specifically Vietnam. So, but there are these uh, growing up milks. There actually, there's a acronym for it called GUMS, G-U-M-S, but uh, there's a real opportunity in, in, the, uh, in the GUMS market, right, for the addition of colostrum. And there's a, there's a number of uh, large and small companies in these international markets that focus on that category. This is really a, a value-added premium product that's being introduced in Vietnam, and that's what we would expect to be the case uh, you know, as we move outside of Vietnam into multiple different locations in the world. And wh- where do you head next, or are you allowed to tell me that? Uh, well, I can tell you is we're focused on, I can tell you what uh, regions we're focused on. 
we're certainly focused in in uh, Asia, you know, and and you have the surrounding countries, you know, around Vietnam that are they're obvious, you know, countries for us to you know move forward with, and we are uh, some of the bigger markets of, of interest for for the gums uh, are obviously Asia, but uh, you you also when you get out of Asia, South and Central America. We think um, have have very interesting markets for these growing up milk products. We also believe that there are a number of uh, countries in Africa uh, that also will see the benefit of gum products going forward. You know, the growing up milk products. I hate throwing out that gum. Make sure we don't (laughs) think people are really thinking we're putting colostrum in the gum. But uh, you know, but uh, the growing up milk side, there's. you know, we think there's tremendous potential, you know, basically in every continent. We're, we're right now also aggressively, you know, moving into uh, uh, India on a number of fronts. We think, uh, you know, obviously that's a very large market, as is China and Brazil for products like this. And so, you know, we have a real focus with our uh, business development and uh, and technical teams uh, in those large countries. Um, and are expecting to see products launch in 2020. Next, we go to Italy and Milano, the headquarters of Interform, who recently put out a very interesting report on the potential for EU trade with Russia to start again in 2020 and what that would mean for the dairy industry. However, before we get to that, I asked the company's corporate service chief, Sean Yam, to give us a little background on the company. Absolutely, with, with pleasure. The oldest, um, let's say, um, part of our company was started, uh, was founded rather in 1968 in Milan. Before then, there was a predecessor company that was very active in the, in the dairy trade between Switzerland and Italy in the 30s, even, or even the 20s. But um, essentially, we are uh, commodities brokers and traders. We are active in almost all the major dairy segments. and. Recently, about two years ago, we developed a new business unit that's basically a consulting and advisory business unit. And we also were able to secure um, a trading license from CONSUB, which would be the Italian equivalent of the um, FCA in the UK or the SEC in the United States. So we're actually also licensed to provide uh, investment services and trading services, very much like a small investment bank. And we're building that up very, very uh, rapidly. So we're both market analysts as well as market participants. We are very much active in the international trade and brokerage of dairy commodities within the, uh, within the common market, but also, um, also to third-party countries in the United States, pardon me, in North America and Latin America, and we've also um, done business in the Far East. And our new business unit is uh, very active in providing um, you know, strategic advice to corporate clients, We've worked in projects ranging from you know, commodities price risk management to commercial due diligences. And um, as you can see from our, our Russia report, we also provide a weekly market newsletter where we offer to our, our, our paid readers quantitative and qualitative analysis of the international dairy market. And we look at sort of some, some other related commodity segments as well, such as you know, um, uh, feed, um, livestock feed and also currency exchange. And one thing we're really pushing, we hope to do more in the new year, uh, is to um, use our market know-how that we actually managed to obtain from being active participants and using that to be able to drive 
research projects and consulting projects and taking that real-world knowledge to actually create intellectual property and, and um, you know, frameworks that are helpful for clients in the sector to uh, you know, save money and to make money. So that's a little bit in a nutshell what we do in Winterform. Yes, you mentioned that Russia report, and really that was what caught my eye because this is something that's been going on for such a long time with no end in sight, and all of a sudden this report comes out that says, hey, there might be an end in sight. Yes. Well, I mean, um, in 2020, the EC is supposed to be renewing or reviewing, rather, um, the state of these sanctions and uh, re-examining its strategy. We know from these last several years not all member states have had the same opinion in terms of the efficacy or the necessity of these of these sanctions. We live in a moment, uh, we find ourselves in a moment rather, uh, where, where prevailing populist winds are not particularly friendly to free trade, but um, it's our opinion that free trade is, is good for the world, it's good for business, it's good for people, it makes the world richer, fairer, and safer in our opinion. But that, that being said, it's possible that in, in 2020 there's going to be a change of policy. There may be, there may not be. You know, we also are long-standing members of various European national and, and, and European um, industry associations. And, you know, there's a lot of chatter at these, at these meetings, um, some of which is speculative, some of which I think is actually based in, in quite, you know, uh, sound market experience or ongoing market activity. And recently, there was talk about a fairly notable um, entrepreneur that works with several Eastern European businesses, and you know it's his opinion that um, the EC is going to reconsider these these uh, these sanctions in the upcoming year. Now, whether or not that's true, we don't know. I mean, that's a that's a political question. I'll leave it to the politicians to decide. What we thought was, you know, hey, it's an interesting academic question with real-world and real-life impacts and implications for market actors. So why don't we actually take the speculative question and look at the quantitative and qualitative evidence and put together a paper uh, that we can you know, put out to the sector. And that's how this whole research piece was born. And clearly there are massive implications with the size of both markets, the EU and the Russian Federation. I mean, absolutely. I mean, in 2013, which was the last full year of, of trading activity before the sanctions came in 2014, uh, the EU exported nearly 1.5 billion euros worth of, of product to the Russian Federation. Now, that's a huge amount. And I think, I think Russian exports actually accounted for 25% of EU dairy exports. And then what we saw as well is in the subsequent years, um, you know, uh, exports went from 1.4 billion euros to practically zero. And then what we also saw was a glut of EU dairy commodities on the markets, and then an oversupply and the subsequent decline in pricing. So, you know, the, the corollary question is absolutely what's going to happen to the industry when and if sanctions are, are, are removed, when there's a policy shift. And we think, you know, we could be looking at an increase of dairy prices due to increased demand from the Russian Federation and you know the possibility of of uh, you know a really good business opportunity for for European market actors because uh, you know it's a country of 100 million people uh, it's been a historic important trading partner up until five years ago it was one of the most important trading partners for for Europe for the European Union and another interesting tidbit we saw uh, or we we managed to sort of uncover through our research was 
even though the Russians have tried to build up internal production capacity, and a lot of it is, you know, the, the state, Russian state has put money into building up domestic supply, they still haven't, you know, gotten up to the level where they're completely independent, where, the, where domestic capacity is meeting domestic demand, because they're still importing, uh, you know, 90,000 tons of cheese, uh, pardon me, of butter a year, 250,000 tons of cheese, 90,000 tons of skim milk powder. So that, that says to us, European actors are very well positioned to play an important role if the sanctions are lifted, especially because we're price competitive. You know, if I compare European prices to, let's use the Americans for an example, we're 10% cheaper. So I think it's going to be an interesting situation in 2020 and I think it makes sense for the industry in Europe to be ready to, you know, to pivot and to re-enter the Russian market if and when sanctions are, are lifted. Well, absolutely, because when something like this happens, other countries move in to fill that void. We've seen trade deals between Russia and some Asian countries, for example. Yeah, and, and that's, exactly, that's exactly the case. I mean, if I look at, for instance, um, you know, uh, let's say countries in the historic Russian sphere of influence. If we look at Belarus, for instance, and this is just on cheese and curd. If we look at, you know, Belarusian imports to the Russian Federation in 2012, you know, not even 80,000 tons. Um, in 2018, we were at 225,000 tons. So that's, you know, a, four, uh, a 400% increase in imports. Uh, it's a similar situation for Armenia on a much smaller scale. But the same concept, you know, if Armenia was importing not even 1,000 tons into Russia in 2012, 2018, they're importing 2,500. Um, same for Kazakhstan and same for Serbia. So I think these examples are emblematic of exactly what you're saying, that the Russians still need product and they still want product. And I think on sort of a more, shall we say, you know, marketing-driven or qualitative analysis, I mean, the EU is known for its various, you know, um, protected origin products, for the quality of its products, for the diversity of products. And so, I'll, you know, if, if you want German Emmental, it's very hard to make German Emmental in, in, in Russia. I'll put it to you that way. How about? Mm-hmm. So, so I think there's really a demand for, for European products still, even though the Russians are finding other trade channels, as well as building up domestic capacity, there's still a gap of, I think, it was, it was around uh, 100,000 tons. This is just on cheese where no one's been able to fill the gap. So there's already a market opportunity. If there weren't sanctions, there would be, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of tons of products crossing the border. And that for us is very interesting. And I think it's something that market participants uh, should be thinking about because there's an absolute business opportunity there, possibly in the near future. And clearly there are many countries in Europe geographically that are situated very close to Russia, like Finland and the Baltic countries that traditionally have had an extremely good trading relationship with Russia. Yes, absolutely. And that's also why when the the sanctions were imposed in 2014, there were several member states. Several member states were not in agreement with, with the EC's approach simply because it hurt, it, it was quite damaging to local business. Now, again, that's a geopolitical consideration, so I'll leave it to the politicians to decide 
on, on, on those matters. But yeah, I mean, the, the economic argument is, is very, or the economic analysis is very clear. If you're Finland and your closest, biggest neighbor and trading partner is Russia, and overnight there's a border that goes up, well, yeah, there's an impact for business, absolutely. And it's not a positive impact for those, for, for those local producers. So, um, so what you're saying, yes, I, I would rather agree with your analysis. And when you follow that through, though, because those are the countries that are most affected, is that going to potentially create issues where the the ones that are most affected are going to obviously be in favor of resuming trade, whereas there are other countries that don't necessarily have a lot invested in trade with Russia? Or is, is everybody trading with Russia to the point that it would benefit most nations? Several member states have been on the record, you know, either criticizing these sanctions or saying that they ought to be re-examined. I mean, you have two of the, you know, big three Eurozone countries, um, Italy and France, publicly stating on the record that maybe it's time to re-examine these sanctions. We have other countries that have historic trading relationships with, with, with Russia, such as Hungary and Greece, Slovakia, who said the same thing. So I think different member states have a different approach, both for economic and for geopolitical reasons. But let's see what happens in the European Commission in the next six months or so. I mean, there's a new commission in place. Uh, there's new leadership in place. So maybe they'll, they'll want to re-examine this. I'm not sure. The world has also changed since 2013. You know, in 2013, there wasn't a, a trade war with, with the United States. Now there is. That's been tough on the industry. We know we know this firsthand. We, you know, as I said, we're we're, we're analysts and we're and we're advisors, but we're also participants. And I can tell you, you know, upfront that for various business partners, both in Europe, for our various business partners, both in Europe and the U.S., the Airbus, you know, ruling and the the ongoing dispute between European and and American um, actors hasn't been hasn't been fun. It hasn't been hasn't been good for business. Uh, you know, so the world has changed. Back then, it was it was sort of a one-front war. It was, well, you know, Russia invaded Crimea. It was it was the wrong thing to do for the Russians. We need to respond to economic sanctions. We're going to take the moral high ground, and we're going to hopefully make the Russians feel the pain, and and they will withdraw from Crimea. Well, they haven't. Whether or not that was the right strategy, I I, I don't know, but. They're still in Crimea, but you know, in 2013 there was a different administrative, different administration in the White House that was pro-free trade. Uh, now there isn't. You know, I'm not saying that the current administration is behind the tariffs. That's an ongoing. Uh, people, people tend to conflate the, the, the WTO ruling with the current occupants of the White House, and and that, that's probably not the best thing to do because um, we're talking about a ruling regarding a particular industry and then a response to that ruling targeting other industries. But all of this is to say now the EU is facing heavy tariffs for trade with the United States and the Russian market has been closed for five years. So uh, there needs to be a, a discussion about how, how to do business when you have two large trading partners that are not as friendly as they were five years ago, put you that way. 
And now we talk to Carolyn Hackenberg, who is Category Manager for Dairy at Tate & Lyle, about the products the company was showcasing in Paris recently at Food Ingredients Europe. I first asked how the show was this year for Tate & Lyle. FIE was a great success um, showing the latest innovations with our Stevia portfolio together with our partner Sweet Greenfields with whom we shared a booth. Together with Sweet Greenfields and Titan Lyle we developed Stevia-based solutions to meet the needs of consumers around the world looking for great tasting naturally derived sweeteners. We had lots of traffic on the booth uh, during the show so during all days uh, we met a lot of uh, our current customers, but also um, visitors that were browsing by and were really interested in yeah, getting to know more about our Stevia solutions. And it uh, was also a great place to meet former colleagues because like at FIE, the whole industry is coming together and you can really see like what is happening there, like what are the trends, uh, what are the latest innovations. Um, so overall, it was a fantastic experience. What new products were you showcasing at the event this year? This year's focus for Tate & Lyle at FIE was really on our Stevia portfolio. As mentioned before, we had a joint booth with our partner SGF. Um, so we showcased our whole portfolio, but also um, we showcased our latest innovation in the market. It's uh, called Celeste Natural Flavor. And this is a product that can be labeled as a natural flavor and is it was developed to deliver a cleaner taste and enhance the flavor profile in uh, dairy products like yogurts or dairy alternatives. Um, so this product acts as a flavor enhancer because the stevia glycoside, so the chemical compound in stevia that delivers sweetness, um, has um, a taste modulation properties. And um, it really can elevate flavors to their true potential. Um, so meaning um, can act as a functional ingredient. And this latest um, addition to our existing portfolio has been specifically designed to boost this taste profiles, as I mentioned, and is also for a lower cost and use across um, a whole range of product categories. And um, we also used uh, our prototypes that we had at the booth, um, for example, uh, sugar-reduced fruit preparation, strawberry-flavored in a yogurt, or um, a stevia-sweetened Creek-style-flavored dairy drink to um, show our customers and um, yeah, interested visitors at our booth how they can use stevia sweeteners in products and what the taste profile is like. So we really developed prototypes um, with a specific stevia sweetener to bring across like our capabilities and, and how the stevia flavor is now really well balanced. What was the reaction like to the new products and are any of them being used in products yet commercially? Yeah, well, our prototypes that we showcased at the booth were really well perceived by all visitors we showcase them the two especially when it comes to taste body and mouse feel um, we already got like really positive feedback on them and our purpose here was really to develop, to develop um, those prototypes to show our customers and potential customers how well stevia sweeteners work now in dairy applications. And we developed those in our two innovation centers um, that we have in Europe and dedicated specific stevia products to a specific dairy application. 
And yes, um, we also have a lot of products on the market already um, that are sweetened with our products. And uh, we are also like really happy to see that Stevia sweeteners in dairy applications are now really ramping up across the world. What relevance do they have for the dairy industry? Um, yeah, so absolutely. Stevia sweeteners and Stevia products have a significant relevance for the dairy industry at the moment especially because consumers are looking more and more for dairy products that um, support a healthy lifestyle um, that also includes consuming less sugar so in Europe um, when we take a look at the product launches we see that low sugar claims um, for example in yogurts are really growing uh, moving away from um, a strong growth in reduced fat in the past um, so therefore, stevia is really gaining traction in the dairy industry. And one positive aspect is that also um, the taste profile has improved significantly since um, the first products that have come to the market. And we as Tate and Lyle are in the position to answer to all these uh, different needs that are addressed to our customers in the dairy space. We have a stevia sweetener yeah, to support them here. So this means like stevia, we will see that definitely in the future, uh, even more used in products and especially in the dairy industry. Many products in an effort to reduce sugar have turned to artificial sweeteners. Are consumers looking to more natural sweeteners like stevia? Well, um, as we have learned before, sugar reduction is really high on the agenda of consumers in general and that also means um, they are looking for yeah less sugary products and therefore also stevia is becoming more and more popular with uh, consumers and we can see that also in the product launches uh, in the dairy space in Europe um, so it's really increasing in the last two years and when we take a look at the whole food and beverage industry in Europe um, stevia is now the third most uh, commonly used sweetener. How do your new products address current trends in the marketplace? With our stevia product portfolio, we are we can definitely answer to the big trend of sugar reduction. Um, that is not only driven by consumers, but also with uh, the sugar taxes that have been uh, introduced, for example, in the UK on sugary beverages. Um, that can maybe extended to other categories in the future as well. And then we have the Nutri-Scores that have been introduced in France already. Um, so with our whole portfolio that we offer um, for sugar reduction, we can like really focus on this one uh, trend we see in the market. And it's um, yeah not only stevia sweeteners that we offer here, we also have a whole toolbox of solutions. For example, our fibers that we can use when we take out sugar in products and um, they lose body and mouthfeel. So we can use um, like our fibers to add back that uh, mouthfeel to those products. The second um, trend we see in the market and where we can play a big role as Tate and Lyle with our ingredients is uh, plant-based dairy alternatives. So um, we also had a prototype at the booth to showcase our capabilities there. So we had a sugar-reduced fruit prep in a coconut yogurt. And it was also very well perceived by um, visitors. And it really was to showcase how a final product on the shelf could look like. And, we, and when we take a look here into the product launches as well, so dairy alternative um, products 
grew in Europe over the last four years by 18%. So this is a significant number and definitely not a trend to ignore. And last but not least, we also focus on clean label. Um, so consumers are looking for ingredients that they recognize um, so that are like for them cleaner label and they could be also plant derived and Tate Lyle is offering a whole portfolio in this direction as well for example with our clean label starches um, to meet the trend of consumers for yeah um, more healthy products but also um, to support their sustainable lifestyle. And now it's time for our weekly update on the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. Butter probably surprised price movement-wise this week and went against sentiment really, where prices not only stabilised but came up a little bit, particularly in quarter two to 36.25 level and 35.90 and quarter three of an equal 35.40 euros from 36.35 to 36.75 um, quarter one. That remained around the 35.50 price level and quarter four around the 37.70 price level. This movement in butter was despite a number of farmer hedging programs where demand was strong for hedging, hedging uh, given the price skimmel powder and butter produced in milk terms. Skimmel powder also surprised a little bit, I suppose, this week. Um, quarter one down uh, 30 euros to 2600, quarter two down around 40 euros to 2610 and quarter three down 20 euros to 26.40. Quarter four kept the trend in place, basically down around 20 euros also to say the 26.60 level. Uh, it seems like trade has been getting a little nervous um, as it sits on some long positions and started to let it liquidate a little bit. Um, this may change over the next week, so it's uh, rumors of a new tender uh, being back in the market uh, may bring back in some buying. Uh, where we may changed around the 770 Thanks, Liam. We'll talk to you again next week for the last time in 2019 before a well-earned rest. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another week. We may have three interviews or four for you on the show next time, just in case you miss us over the holiday season. Hopefully we'll have four to make it a nice long one. Four calling birds and Alan Partridge in a pear tree. And if you're from a country that isn't familiar with Alan Partridge, please do head over to YouTube and see some of his funnier moments, which are quite a lot. Definitely not a radio role model, but absolutely one of the funniest comedies to come out of the UK in recent years. And I'm not on commission. And so on that note, whichever note it may be, I will invite you to join us again next week. Hope you enjoyed the show this time, and I hope you have a great week ahead. And thanks for listening. <laughs>